I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I will catch up, talk about what's going on in the news from the uh, trial up in Minnesota of Derek Chauvin to the killing of Dante Wright to also a situation that uh, was unfolding out of Virginia that we just found out about. Uh, happened all the way back in December, but I saw video footage of it this week uh, of another African-American pulled over who happens to be uh, uh, Army Reserve uh, personnel, and he was in uniform. We're also going to talk about uh, the pandemic as well as what's going on more recently in the news. Uh, later on the pod, uh, Autumn and I sat down with Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who's the Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean of Graduate School at Baylor University. Dr. Barr has a new book out, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and you want to stay tuned for that interview. So stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are things in your neck of the woods? It's cold in Oklahoma. It is cold in Oklahoma. You know, April is really hit or miss here. We could be having our wind going in a circle or it could be, you know, frost on the ground. And it's it's chilly. I had to dig some of the kids' winter clothes back out of their closet this morning. That's exactly right. Well, it, it's been a strange week as far as the news is concerned, you know. I uh, wrote in my article this week, uh, talked, uh, brought up one of my old favorites, Marvin Gaye, uh, in his iconic song, uh, What's Going On, to describe, it seems like we just are in a time warp. I mean, it's been a year since the death of George Floyd. Um, so many people came out and marched across the country demanding justice and policing reform. And it seemed as though the country was in solidarity for the most part, even though certainly there were people who resisted it. But it seemed as though we were heading in the right direction. And here, all of a sudden this week, you got the Chauvin trial going on. You got a situation occurring in Minnesota, just 10 miles away from where the trial is being conducted, where a officer of uh, a police uh, uh, can't, what was the name of this this city? It's uh, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Kim Potter uh, pulls her gun and shoots Dante Wright for a traffic violation. And they found out that uh, there was a warrant, but it just—I mean—it just all snowballs. And mm-hmm. she claims, and she's heard on the video saying "Taser, Taser, Taser," but she doesn't 
pull the taser. She pulls her firearm and discharges it, killing Wright. Um, you know, as one of our colleagues uh, so prophetically said this week, it's always the wrong something. It's the wrong door. It's the wrong person. It's, you know, the wrong gun. Um, you know, at some point, you have to ask, is it? Is it really? It's so ingrained in our society that it just, you know, it's just appalling. We can't let this excuse go by because then anytime a police officer wants to use deadly force, they'll just yell taser, 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 and then do whatever they want. Right. And it's not acceptable. We have to hold their feet to the fire. Now, Officer Potter was uh, arrested this week and charged with, uh, I believe, third degree manslaughter, if I'm not mistaken. That's uh, shocking to me, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. But if that was not enough, Autumn, uh, video footage emerged from a situation that occurred last year in Windsor, Virginia, where U.S. Army Lieutenant uh, Karen Nazario was pulled over. Um, he was, um, uh, the situation began on a dark road after he was leaving drill for the weekend. He was in his fatigues. Uh, it was a dark road, um, you know really nowhere to pull off uh, that would be safe as far as Lieutenant Nazario uh, thought in his mind. So he drove a mile, low speed, wasn't a high speed at all, a low speed to a lighted parking lot in a gas station. And two of the officers jumped out of their car, one pulling a firearm on him, the other you know, yelling at him, screaming uh, to comply. Uh, you can see the lieutenant's hands out the window, very calmly talking to the officers all the time and using very, very troubling rhetoric uh, to get him to comply to their orders. And he was honest with them. I'm scared to get out of the car because you may shoot me. You know, I'm, I'm frightened. And then they say, well, you should be frightened. And then, of course, they use that uh, terrible line. What's going on? Uh, what's going on with you is you're about to, f to ride the lightning son, which, you know, is a direct <sighs> reference to the electric chair. And so it's just, it's just disheartening. I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, it's Thursday afternoon of this week, um, and we're recording this for Friday Drop, and just sitting here shaking my head because it seems as though we try to take steps forward and then all of these situations emerge and here we are again. Right. And the rhetoric from, you know, the other side is, why are we still talking about this? I'm not racist. And like, we clearly still have discussions that need to be had because of this. Why, why are we still talking about it? Because events like this continue to happen. Like we can't even go like it's like those reports at the factory. There's been zero days since the last occurrence. Zero days. There have been zero days since the last, you know, person was killed because of their race. It is, you know, and it, it's all—it's always couched in uh, the context of, okay, well, they should have followed orders, or you know, they shouldn't have, you know, been disobeying the law. Let's think about this for a second. George Floyd lost his life because of a supposedly twenty-dollar fake bill. Dante Wright lost his his life because of an expired tag, which is now. Uh, coming to light, that the state of Minnesota admits that they are running behind in issuing new tags and new registrations. Um, and so it's just, I mean, it, it's just disheartening. And you think about Brianna Taylor, you know, she was just lying in bed. I mean, nothing than this, you know, uh, Army lieutenant 
who you know, and they said it was a tag that he didn't have visible tags. Well, in the video, you can see the temporary tag. He had just purchased this car, and there's a temporary tag in the back window. He got pulled over because he was a black man. Simple mm-hmm. as that. And I'm I'm just I, I am I'm at a loss, um, you know. And as a Native American in this country. Um, I can't imagine, if I'm exhausted, I can't imagine uh, the frustration and anger and heartbreak and discontent within the African community, African-American communities across this country. It's just, just really, really uh, unsettling. So we're going to keep talking about it. That's right. You know, I, I, in my article this week, I certainly quote to Dr. King, can never be uh, understated. Uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only love, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. But in the shadow of Dr. King's statement, I also quote fellow Baptist and social activist uh, Cornell West, who offered a similar assessment. And he says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Here's the reality. America does not like or love its black citizens. I'm going to say it again. America does not love its black citizens. Yep. That is just look around. It's evidence. It is. That is an indictment on who we are as a people. And we've got to do better, Autumn. We've got to do better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it starts with uh, seeking justice for those who have lost their lives and who have succumbed to the injustices of our society. But we can do it. I know we can. Hopeful, a new generation is emerging uh, that's not going to stand for this. Another item in the news this week is that the vaccine rollout hit a snag with the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine uh, being paused right now. Uh, they're studying it to see if there are potential uh, side effects to that, the most uh, the most. Uh, uh, troubling is that it could cause blood clots in women, uh, because I think there's been a number of women. When I say a number, um, I, I can't remember the exact number. Six. Six. This is what came to mind. Six women who have died as a, as a result of blood clots coming uh, after they were they received the injection. So, trying to figure out were they already prone to blood clots, or did the vaccine actually contribute to the blood clotting? I think it's important that they're stopping. I think it really, um, even though, of course, it's frustrating. We want, you know, all hands on deck, all shots in arms. Let's get over this thing. I appreciate that they are pausing it, that they are being transparent because folks who are suspicious of vaccines are using this and saying like, oh, there's six blood clots. Oh, vaccines aren't safe. But here's the thing. They're being transparent. They pause the vaccines. They're studying it. I think they're being very responsible. And I think the, you know, the opposite of that argument is true. You know, the Pfizer is still fine. Moderna is still fine. I think, I think probably Johnson and Johnson will be fine. There are a lot of things that cause way higher percentage of a blood clot risk, including having COVID. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, it's one of those things, do the benefits outweigh the risk, which is something that you and I have discussed as we've talked to different epidemiologists uh, over the course of COVID. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I'm glad that they are stopping it just to, to make you know, sure that, that it is safe. 
but it does seem as though the other vaccines are going to be able to roll, be rolled out, and there's going to be enough vaccines for every American to have the, the have the ability to be vaccinated by the end of July. I know that was a, a goal of the Biden administration. It seems like they could hit that sooner than later. Of course, the problem is you still have knuckleheads out there who, and, and a lot of them call themselves Christian knuckleheads, uh, saying that they're not going to take the vaccine. It just blows my mind. Yeah, I, I think the last statistic I heard was about 30% of folks who who won't get it. Um, and I, I don't know what to do with that. You know, I'm... My, I have family members who are who are in that camp, and um, it's been a, a point of contention for sure. Yeah. Well, I just want to encourage everybody. It is safe. Uh, they're taking precautions when you know, some troubling data does emerge, but this is a safe vaccine. Uh, you can trust it, and it's it's going to do 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 the job. Uh, yeah. And so, Mitch please. and I are fully vaxxed. We are. We are. And we're enjoying our superpowers. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm now part of the X Men. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, and then f- the final uh, tidbit of news that came out this week was that President Biden announced a total withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Mm. And as he made the announcement, uh, the new cycle began, obviously, talking about. Uh, the longest war that America has ever been a part of. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. The class of 2021, the young men and women who are walking across the stage here in May, we have been at war with Afghanistan for all of their lives. Think about That's crazy. Think about that. Your sons, your, your, your granddaughters, your nieces, your, your nephews. When you go to that graduation in May or you watch it virtually safe at home, when you see that graduate, just know they have never known a country not at war. Yeah. Well, we had a delightful conversation this week with Dr. Beth Allison Barr, whose new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, is fascinating. And so I'm excited to, uh, to for you to hear this. And uh, Autumn and I, we had this great conversation with Dr. Barr, and it's a great book. So stay tuned. Discovering Wholeness is a new podcast from Good Faith Media for healing trauma, for unearthing self. Because trauma is so pervasive in our communities, it comes into our spiritual spaces, our churches. Mm. And I'm wondering how trauma is expressed in religious communities. My experience of of sitting in the the pain, the shame, and the terror at times with some of the people that I have um, sat with that have experienced that judgment, but to the degree of those kinds of really strong words like abomination and you're going to hell. And it's so heart-wrenching. I'm Kendall Rothis, an author, feminist theologian, ordained minister, and spiritual director. Join me and my colleagues, Kendra Frazier and Jillian Drader, as we gather each week to discuss trauma and spirituality, to stay grounded as we heal ourselves and walk alongside those who are healing. Join us and learn more at 
goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Dr. Barr is an Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where she specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. She is the President of the Conference on Faith and History and is a member of Christians for Biblical Equality. Barr has written for Christianity Today, The Washington Post, and Religion News Service. And she is a regular contributor to The Anxious Bench, the popular Pathos website uh, on Christian history. Dr. Barr's new book is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. And the book will be available for purchase or download on April the 20th. Dr. Barr, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So we've got to get this out of the way. I mean, it's hanging there in the air and we just got to get it out of the way. Congratulations to the Baylor Bears men's basketball team for winning the national championship. Those of us live in Norman, Oklahoma, we kind of get used to national championships, you know, every 10 years or so, but we understand it's a big thing Whoa, in Waco you're right now. Literally. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I can't imagine the excitement on campus right now. Everything. So, yeah, well, we. We're faculty and residents, and so we live with undergrads. And um, they—I don't think they slept last night. So you know, they were—we could hear them for a very, very long time. The Dr. Pepper floats were flowing. Uh-huh. They were flowing. Uh, yes, yes. We won't talk about what else might have been flowing, but nonetheless, they were—they were exuberant and excited and. Oh, that had it was a, so exciting! Had a great time. I was watching my Facebook and Twitter feeds last night, and all my uh, Baylor colleagues, man, they were just so ecstatic. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Well, I'm happy for them, and the good good thing for the university. Yes, it is. Yeah, it was fun. So speaking of basketball, there was an incident that came up uh, during the NCAA men's and women's tournaments. The women players revealed the difference between the men and women's weight rooms. The yes. men were given, you know, state-of-the-art, fancy-schmancy, and then the women got, you know, two gallons of milk on the end right. of the stick. So uh, <laughs> was that moment um, just a microcosm of the inequality that we see in society today? Oh, totally. I mean, you can even... Yes, I mean it clearly is that when we think about um, when we think about who's important and who we're going to fund, it clearly is more. You know, the men's programs are still the ones that are more well funded. Um, I mean, you could even think, and I, I don't want to say anything disparaging at all because we are so excited about the men's national, oh, sure. you know, um, uh, basketball win last night. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the women at Baylor have won this a lot. Right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> right. you know, we have a very successful. So, I mean, it's, 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 I think that the difference in the locker rooms um, clearly shows that we are not past that even in our very, very modern society, that we, st- there's still significant inequality um, mm-hmm. between women and men. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I think, uh, Dr. Bart, your book is so important for us right now, because some of the inequalities that we see in society that, that you know, Autumn just mentioned with her question, you know, I think there there is a direct correlation between how the church has looked at gender inequality and have propagated 
this doctrine of you know manhood and womanhood and and what that mm-hmm. means for you know centuries upon centuries um and so i'm really excited that this book is coming out um so tell us a little bit about the book yeah so the making of biblical womanhood um is not really something i ever intended to write uh it is something that i the it was really born i guess in 2016 Mm-hmm. Um, when there was a combination of factors, and one was my husband getting fired um, over the triggering issue was uh, women in ministry was asking for a woman to be able to teach Sunday school. And that was the same semester as um, the, the when Donald Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. And even though I've grown up all my life in more conservative Baptist circles, mm-hmm. um, even within those more conservative Baptist circles, the women who who had been following Trump and had seen the way that Trump responded to women and the way that Trump treated women, it was very traumatic to realize that the people that we went to church with elected him right. <laughs> president. Exactly. I mean, it was a, yeah. That was a very traumatic experience. I, I still don't think people grasp how traumatic that was um, for ordinary women in the church, for many ordinary women in the church. And so that combined with my husband uh, being fired from a place that we had been at for a long time and had a very good ministry over such a trivial issue, it seems, and, and certainly not a gospel issue, um, and also something that's not based in anything biblical, despite the claims. Um, it caused, it really, it was a moment where everything changed for me. And the book actually starts in the moment that everything changed for me, where I realized I had to do something that I knew I knew where biblical womanhood came from. And I, you know, through my historical training, through my understanding of the Bible, I knew that it wasn't biblical. And I realized that most of the people around me had no idea um, because of the, the what we've been taught in Sunday school, what we have been taught in our church history curriculum, what we've been taught in seminary. None of that addresses um, these questions of, of women's history scholarship. And, and even, you know, the, the, the broad understanding of Paul, the historical understanding of Paul, I mean, these, were, these are conversations that are absent in modern evangelical churches. And so people just don't know. Um, so I began to write, if you go and look at my history on the anxious bench, and I left up all of my original posts, um, the book was born in several of my posts on the anxious bench, and I left them up because I wanted people to see, to see the evolution of my thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see me beginning to speak out. I started first with a series on disrupting, on, on Paul, sorry, on rethinking Paul, and that led to a series on disrupting Christian patriarchy. And it was at that point that I had gotten a lot of attention for these posts um, that I got contacted by an editor who asked me if I had thought about about writing a book. Um, And so really, this book um, was not my end goal. My end goal was getting helping people know that the churches, what the church thinks is biblical womanhood is not actually biblical. Right. Um, so if that helps a little bit. No, absolutely. It helps out a great deal. You know, I can remember I went to Southwestern Seminary many years ago, and uh, I arrived on campus there in Fort Worth, a good little fundamentalist uh, and patriarch uh, in, in all 
in all of my thinking. And I can remember sitting there listening to Dr. Boo Heflin, who was an Old Testament professor, and I've written about this at goodfaithmedia.org, um, listen to him begin to deconstruct everything that I had been taught about mm-hmm. uh, the, the inequality of gender roles. Yeah. And, and he did it using the Bible, which just blew my mind. It was like, wow, there's a lot more in this Bible that uh, I have not been told about and how to look at certain texts in, in a new and fresh way, or really a traditional way uh, that is more productive and more insightful than what I have been taught growing up. So that's what, you know, just the title itself, this making of biblical right. womanhood, I think is important because one of the frustrating, frustrating points for me, assuming it would be for you as well, is when you get into these debates about equality and inequality, a lot of times more conservative voices, more conservative theologians say, well, your argument is not with me, it's with the Bible. That's not true whatsoever. (laughs) Exactly. It defaults to this idea that biblical womanhood is built upon a biblical idea. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the, that's, and that's a, that's a conversation stopper for people because they're like, well, you know, I'm sorry, this is the way God created it. And so you just got to live with it. And if you fight against it, then you're fighting against God. Mm -hmm. And that narrative is just not true. Um, And in fact, the making of biblical womanhood, part of the reason we settled on that title was to show from the get-go that biblical womanhood is something constructed by people. It is not something made, you know, it's not something divinely ordained in the stars. Um, It is something that people have created. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then your subtitle is very provocative for me, how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. Because just a moment ago, one of your answers, you said, you know, this issue you know, seems to be apart from gospel. You know, I'd argue that it's wrapped inside of gospel, but it's not the gospel truth. And, and right. so my question is, how did the subjugation of women get tied into what you define as gospel truth? Yeah, that's actually a very modern development if we think about biblical womanhood and we think about the history of women in the church. And so one of the things that modern Christians have a hard time with is that what they remember about church history, what they know about church history is that women mostly haven't been priests and preachers and teachers, not to the same degree that men have. And so they look at that and they say, oh, this is the way that it's always been. This is the way that it's always supposed to be. And so it makes them without critically examining that, it makes them, um, you know, think, well, this is the way that it's supposed to be now. And so what happened at the end of the 20th century um, is when that understanding, you know, that that sort of understanding that most Christians had, that patriarchy or that the subordination of women is a part of the Christian tradition, is part of Christianity, when it began to be tied to the gospel message, they were like, well, of course, because this is the way God ordained it. I mean, it was sort of people didn't question it. Um, but what happened, and I really and I think this is because the history that we often don't know is that there were a lot of preaching women. And a lot of teaching women, even in the 20th century. Um, And it is interesting to me that at the time where we see women beginning to make more strides in leadership in the church is that the time that we also begin to see this um, subjugation of women being tied with the gospel. And for those of you who don't know that or don't think, just go read Tim Keller 
who ties it into the gospel, go read Owen Strachan, I never can say his name, um, who who relatively recently has said that complementarianism, which is biblical womanhood, is a gospel issue. Um, Tim Keller, I think, is the one who said that people who don't accept women's subordinate role within the church, that that they have a weaker understanding of the Bible and the gospel. And then, of course, Russell Moore in that somewhat infamous article he wrote in 2006, in which he said that we've got to make complementarianism, biblical womanhood, more enforced within the church. And so we need to create a vision of it that ties it directly into the gospel. And so what we see is these major, these significant, I don't know if I put Owen Strachan in that, but he's part of this sort of milieu. Um, But we see these significant voices in American Christianity proclaiming that the these distinctive gender roles that put leadership in men's court and subordination in women's um, are connected to a proper understanding of the Bible and have become gospel truth. Um, and specifically in, in the book, I connect that to the rise of inerrancy, which is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, um, as well as the reincarnation of an old heresy, which is just amazing that it has come back into the church again. So, yeah, when you hear the words uh, enforced, um, yeah. I just it takes me back to my Margaret Atwood days <laughs> reading Handmaid's Tale. Oh, uh, it just, I know. it's terrifying well, pe- to me. People don't like, you know, we we don't like to hear that language, but if we think about what's happened in churches mm-hmm. and how these things have been enforced, mm-hmm. um, people who resist it get pushed out of the churches. I mean, that's what happened to us. Mm-hmm. Um, they get pushed out. And and so, I mean, that that's enforcement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think the reason we don't hear about as many women, um, you know, priests and um, ambassadors during Bible times is because uh, they were too busy also like doing the mom thing. And, you know, we didn't have breast pumps back then. So we had to like actually be getting the work done while also like carrying scripture around. And the men had time to write about themselves as men are wont to do. Well, you know, I, part of it is, and this is, I think, um, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but the history of the world is patriarchal. And so most of the people who got the education um, are, you know, were still far and were men, um, the people who had the ability to control the narrative. And so actually what's really shocking is how many women get into this narrative. Um, and so, I mean, in, in Christianity, ton, I mean, so many women get into this narrative. And so that's actually something that's pretty, you know, shocking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. If we think about women in the early church, women who became some significant players in the early church who did get written about, most of those women were women who either left their roles as wives and mothers or never partook in those roles as wives and mothers Mm -hmm. um, because the church didn't emphasize that as the only pathway for women. I think today, Mm -hmm. um, women to be godly women were expected to be wives and mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early church, that wasn't the case. Uh, the The women who were considered to be more dedicated to God were the ones who actually forsook those roles, um, which I talk about a few of them 
in my book. I mean, you can think about Paula, St. Paula, who I talk about, who helped write the Vulgate with Jerome. And she actually abandoned her children, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And, and went off to go live, you know, they were fine. Right, sure. But she, I mean, she did. She left one of them crying on the yeah. beach and <laughs> went off to go join Jerome in what she got was called to do and, and ended up being um, one of the translators of the Bible into Latin. Mm. So, wow. So that's a little bit. So, you know, I think um, I do think part of it is, is that the way narratives are constructed, they're mostly constructed by men and for men. And so they leave women out of the histories. Uh, but at the same time, women always kind of find their way in regardless of their very many roles. And I think that's one of the amazing things about the history of Christianity is how how God I mean, women don't get left out. Um, we keep trying to leave them out, but they actually don't. Dr. So. Barr, do you, is, do you, can you trace back a moment in history, uh, church history, biblical history, where patriarchal, patriarchalism um, just basically took over the narrative? Because here you have Jesus, and in his narrative and his story, he's doing everything he can to lift up women to demonstrate mm -hmm. uh, this this theology of uh, of equality and of and you know giving women uh, a place to to learn at his feet, empowering them uh, to to teach and to preach, and I mean just time and time again we see this with Jesus, and then uh, he le he leaves the scene. No, he. Rose in the grave, don't right. save your emails. <laughs> Rose in the grave. Yeah. Uh, but he leaves the scene, and then all of a sudden, uh, you've got Paul, you've got you know, the rest of the apostles, the, the first century church begins to develop. But then two, three hundred years, you've got Constantine, and the full force of the patriarch is, yeah. is in place. So... Um, Actually, I can pinpoint several times because in women's history, this is something that women's historians have identified for a lot. There's patterns in women's access um, to to authority, and we often see it coming sort of in um, it, you know it, at times where there is less structure and less clearly defined roles. We find women moving into more leadership positions that are officially recognized. And then as structures get more established and as roles get more clearly defined, we see women being written out of those leadership structures. Mm -hmm. So take, for example, in the early church, yes, there is a flourishing of women because of the example of Jesus. I would also say because of Paul. I mean, you know, Paul has a lot of women working with them. I, I think Paul gets a that. bad rap. <laughs> he does. I think so too. You know, um, and, you know, he gives Romans to Phoebe and he does all of these sorts of you know, things. And then what we see, though, as Christianity then becomes the institutionalized religion of the state is when we see women beginning to be pushed out. Now, they have a lot of places to go. They go out, you know, we see these desert mothers who are just mm -hmm. as significant as the desert fathers. They just get left out of the historical narrative. Um, we, especially if we look at the history of Eastern Orthodoxy, um, you know, the Eastern part of the church, women are much more prominently um, played, you know, displayed. We also see, I have a grad student who works on medieval Africa, and she's found some fascinating things about women okay. there. Um, in in the Ethiopian church. And so, but as structures become more enforced and more regulated is when we begin seeing women written out. So as we see the 
position of bishop becoming established. And we see the, you know, the, the sort of this idea of apostolic authority being clearly in place where it gets passed down um, through what becomes ordination. We begin to see women being pushed, you know, out. They're not recognized within that male lineage. Mm -hmm. And so we start seeing them get pushed out. And we have we have some examples of women like Bridget of Kildare, who's a great example in the early, who accidentally gets ordained, um, according to the the stories about her. And they're like, oh, uh oh, well, that's fine. You know, she's the only one and <laughs> she gets to continue on. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's sort of a whoops. But um, but nonetheless, but the reason that she's allowed to continue on is because there is a history of women like her doing those same sorts of things. Yeah. So I think the reason women get written out is because men begin to control who gets let in. Mm. And so, I mean, women really have continued to do the same things. We just don't call it official leadership roles. I mean, women have always preached. Um, women have always taught. Mm -hmm. It's just that they don't get recognized with the same authority and status of men. Um, and so that's yeah. Is well, that helpful? Well, I'm a man. It doesn't help. Me, it doesn't help me a whole lot being a man. But well, no, no. <laughs> I mean, talking about the narrative of you know, women getting no, pushed that, out. So it, yeah, it ebbs it's very and fascinating. Flows. Absolutely. So, yeah. And it's you know, it just it's so frustrating to 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 be reminded that that the patriarch has been so strong for so long, but there are cracks. Yeah, there are cracks, and in fact, you know the conservative resurgence of the 1970s is because of a crack in the 20th century where we start seeing women moving into ministerial roles and then we see a crackdown on them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there is a renewed interest in this conversation within the church and society um, prompted recently, most recently by Beth Moore's public departure from yeah. the um, and churches with more conservative theology are now sort of reevaluating their conclusions. Some of them are. Some of them. <laughs> Do you think this might be one of those hinge moments in history? I am optimistic that it might be. Now, as a historian, we are very skeptical, hesitant to predict the future. Um, but based upon past patterns, uh, this clearly does seem to be a moment of reckoning, as some has called it. And the church has realized what people have been saying for a very long time is that this authoritarian structure that excludes women from leadership roles and doesn't allow women to exercise in, you know, often very little authority and leadership in the church puts women in very vulnerable positions um, that leads to, you know, church too. And these, you know, these explosion of sex scandals and so forth, you know, there's a correlation. Um, you know, between these very authoritarian structures and and women being left in these more vulnerable positions. So I think the church has begun to realize this. Um, I think also the election of Donald Trump um, really woke up a lot of people. I mean, that's clearly, I mean, Beth Moore, that's when it, you know, she has that famous tweet where she said, wake up sleepers, um, when she suddenly realized that people were really contemplating voting for Donald Trump. But she was like, wake up sleepers, you know, what is going on? So I think the church is waking up. Um, I also think that, and this is something in the past, one of the problems that women have had in the past is that even though we have known the problems, we haven't had a platform to 
to get that information out there. And the world, the internet world has changed that. And so if you go back, you know, to the late 90s and the early 2000s, you begin to see women beginning to circumvent. I mean, you know, Rachel Held Evans, Lifeway wouldn't publish mm -hmm. her book, but people still read her blog. Yep. And, you know, she just because they stopped publishing her didn't mean that she wasn't still getting her message out there. And so women have found a way to circumvent it. And, and in fact, you can't like, and then you have, you know, people like me, like Beth Moore too, um, Beth Moore leaving the SBC also means that she's in the Baptist tradition, which has a long history of supporting women in ministry. Um, and so she can't, you know, what can they do to her to stop her? Right. They, they don't control her publications. They don't control her voice anymore. Um, you know, the same sort of thing with me is uh, I, we're in a Baptist tradition we choose to be in a Baptist, you know, to support women in ministry. Um, I'm at a university that is very broad. Um, I have tenure. I mean, all of, I mean, seriously, sure. yeah. there's not much that can be. So I think women's voices are no longer being silenced the way that they used to be silenced. Let's talk about that platform for a moment, because I, this yeah. is fascinating to me, because I think you're right. Uh, there yeah. are more opportunities for uh, female voices, whether that is uh, theologians, historians, mm -hmm. professors, pastors, yep. uh, there, there's just more avenues for them to, 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 uh, vocalize their, their message and what God's put on their heart. Mm -hmm. At the same time, let's go back to the local church because yeah. there was a, uh, there was a study released by Baptist Women in Ministry, uh, oh my goodness, probably about five, six years ago now, uh, that demonstrated the really insignificant uh, advances women have made in the pulpit. It seems as though yes. there are a lot of churches, uh, a lot of individuals who give a lot of lip service to equality and women in ministry, uh, but opportunities have not just been, yeah. you know, <laughs> there haven't been a lot of opportunities for them. Uh, but at the same time, I do see those opportunities increasing more recently. And then and we talk about things like Beth Moore and mm -hmm. you know, your book coming out and, and other examples that we see uh, of strong female leadership. It just gives me hope. But when I go back to the local church, yes. I'm still a little bit discouraged because it seems as though the church hasn't been able to, to break free from that finally to say yes to women in the pulpit. No, I, I totally agree with that. I was on a meeting, I can't remember, a few years ago, where I um, heard the numbers of empty pulpits in Baptist churches in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and most of those churches, there are plenty of women to fill those pulpits, female pastors, but those churches won't bring them. And so, I mean, it, it would solve our empty pulpits in the Baptist world if churches would bring women in to serve. And so there is, there's a disconnect. And in fact, I'm in, you know, you mentioned I'm um, in the conference on faith and history and I've been president a year longer than I meant to because of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to delay. So hopefully not for, I mean, it's a great organization, but I'm ready sure. to not be in charge. Right, sure. um, but 
one of the conversations we started having years ago, and this was between um, Kristen Cobez Dumay, who of course is the author of Jesus and John Wayne now, but mm-hmm. she was also one of my, she wrote with me on, writes with me on the anxious bench. And then Chris Geertz, who is also um, writes on the anxious bench. And I always mispronounce his last name, even though I've known him for a very long time, but he'll forgive me. Uh, but we had a panel a few years ago, and it was on the disconnect between what Christian scholars know and what Christians in the church know. And that this creates, so no matter what advances that we sort of make and understandings that we sort of make um, and progress in many areas, there's a great disconnect between then how we get that to churches. And I think a big piece of that is seminaries. Mm. Um, you know, when the the conservative resurgent took over, the that was why they did it. I mean, what they did was in some ways brilliant because they knew that in order to change the culture of churches, they had to control what pastors were taught. Mm -hmm. And so they moved in and they took over the seminaries. And what we have right now is the churches are now run by these pastors who graduated from these seminaries that were controlled by the conservative resurgence. And um, it's had a significant impact on the culture of our churches. Um, And, uh, you know, it takes years to change a culture in churches. And so I think I think that's discouraging. Um, I can think about in Waco, and I've done this before, and I don't want to call out you know, other churches in Waco, but I've counted how many, you know, we have Truett in Waco, mm-hmm. Truett, which fully supports women in ministry, but yet most of our women who graduate from Truett don't get hired by Waco churches. Right. Um, and wait, most Waco churches don't have women in preaching or even pastoral positions. Mm-hmm. And so it is, and but I think it's that disconnect. Yeah. Um, and so, well, what you know, can what can we do? Cause, I mean, it, 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 we can talk <laughs> about it. And it gets quite depressing. You know, you look at the history, but you know, actually, there are moments of hope. You've mentioned those moments of hope yeah. historically, but today, right now, what can we do to try to right this ship? To be advocates for genuine equality and gender justice in this, this world of ours? What, what can we do uh, to, to help advocate for this cause? I feel like there's yeah. some kind of medieval device that would, <laughs> that would fix everything because yes. the medieval church was so not patriarchal. <laughs> I'm told totally that's museums not in true. Germany. Yeah. They tell me there's some devices uh, in my house. And yeah. Yeah. No. Um, you know, there's two things mm-hmm. that I think that help change culture. Um, and one of them is experience. And I think a big problem, and I keep trying to get my husband to write a book with me on this, um, you because know, we were in youth ministry for so long. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we noticed was that most of the kids in our youth group had never gone to other types of churches. They were so, if I can use the word inbred, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, I mean, they had never been to, they'd never been to an Anglican service or to a Catholic service. And when I say Anglican, I mean, like in the UK where I go, um, they had never been to, you know, I, I don't, I mean, they'd never been to a black church mm-hmm. and seen that. And so it, that their experiences are so narrow and they'd never seen women teaching or preaching. Um, it seems to me if we could just get people to see women, especially women who are 
in almost every other way parallel to those faith traditions. Um, you know, one of the problems with women is that there's so few churches that take us that we have to, oftentimes we have to leave behind the churches that we might prefer to be in um, and move to other traditions or ones that are more progressive perhaps, um, you know, simply because there's no other place to go. And so what that, but what that does is that then it makes these churches that already are resistance to women in ministry lose all of their called women. Um, and we no longer have women in these places who really do have callings to preach, teach, and lead. So it seems to me we've got to somehow change these experiences. Yeah. Uh, we've got to in we've got to introduce um, our 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 youth and our people within the pews to how God uses both women and men in biblically faithful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other key part to it is, is, and of course, I'm an educator, so I'm always going to say education. Oh, absolutely. Um, but we've got to change what people are learning in mm-hmm. churches. You know, I, we've, got to, we've got to take away the stranglehold. I mean, in the Baptist circles, Lifeway has a stranglehold on the curriculum in churches. Um, I've grown up in the Baptist church. I haven't always been in the Baptist church, but when I've been, you know, currently we are back in the Baptist church, but as where we've been, they've always used Lifeway Sunday school material. And I have to tell you that I will never teach. I've, I, I have not ever taught from it. I always change it. I'll do whatever because I've never been happy with how it portrays church history as well as the understanding of the Bible. Um, so we've we've got to change this curriculum that people are being taught. Um, and that's really one of the reasons I wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And the reason I wrote it in the way I did was to try to break down some of this disconnect between academia and people in the pews sure. to try to help them see that there's another way. I love that. I mean, providing examples and education, I think the, I think you're absolutely 100% right. On the education front, we're doing our part, Nurturing Faith uh, uh, curriculum. Are. We have curriculum out there written by uh, Dr. Tony Cartledge uh, that advocates for uh, equality on all levels. So yes. those of you who are suffering under the oppression of Lifeway, just give us a try. We would love to, to entertain <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. And I, I don't mean, you know, I know a lot of people who work at Lifeway. It's, you know, I hate to call Oh, they're good people. They're good people. And her, you know, but it's just it has a, it's had a significant impact. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, it when, matters. You know, when I, we've dealt with several people who've been published by Lifeway, uh, who've worked at Lifeway. And one of the things that was really disheartening to me was when I heard the fact when you are published from Lifeway, they own that material. Yep. From here until Jesus comes back. Yep. <laughs> so if you ever change your mind on it or want to tweak something, you can't without their permission. Yeah. Uh, they own it. So. Yeah, no, that's actually, and they, people don't realize that. Yeah, right. so. so. Well, good. Well, I like that. Provide examples. I can never f- forget uh, when my kids uh, growing up and I pastored for 20 years, they saw women preachers all the time, women leaders, mm-hmm. deacons, and when they would spend the night with a friend on a Saturday night and go to some of the more conservative churches here in Oklahoma, they would come back with their eyes wide open saying, yes. you're not going to believe what we <laughs> experienced this morning. Yes. They said, We're so, yeah. we so love our church. I was like, great. Oh, it's good to hear. Yeah, no, and and the opposite happens too. When mm-hmm. you have kids who are in more conservative churches and they go and they hear the gospel message being preached faithfully, 
from the, the mouth of a woman from a pulpit, it makes an impact, which That's... is why conservatives are often so afraid <laughs> to let people hear women. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Before we let you go, though, Autumn is going to ask you our final question that we ask all of our guests. So our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about and your upcoming book, what is your more to tell? Gosh, you asked me that at the beginning and now I completely forgot. So I hadn't <laughs> thought about it, but there is so much more to tell. I think maybe the thing that I would want, um, what I want maybe women and men to hear is that the making of biblical womanhood only tips the scale of just, it's just a tiny bit of what the church doesn't know. And for all of my years of being, you know, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church and going to a secular public university in a women's studies program that would probably curl a lot of people's hair, um, you know, they're all, you know, who would not approve of it. Um, I have to tell you that I have never seen anything that has made me lose my faith in the gospel of Jesus. And what I have seen has only strengthened the need for us to break down barriers that keep people from hearing the gospel of Jesus. And so maybe my something more is that my goal is to get the gospel freed from these from these um, from these things that weigh it down. I mean, I'm trying not to quote Paul, but indeed, but so hard. Yeah, it's so hard not to quote Paul, <laughs> you know. But indeed, we have been so trapped. The gospel has been so trapped by us, the very people who are supposed to be bringing it to the world. Mm -hmm. And so I just really would like people to, to think about how their church had, you know, what else they can do to help free the gospel. So we can really be people of the gospel and do what God has called us to do. So I don't know if that may, may have been more serious than it. what you wanted. There's no. so much more I could tell you too. I'm just glad you didn't <laughs> mention the bears won the national championship. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it, you know, I, thought, I could, I could have reverted to living on a college campus mm -hmm. and, you know, I make star Wars waffles, by the oh, way, that's something that. else. Oh. I have about oh. 15 <laughs> waffle makers, most of them star Wars related. And oh, so fantastic. I make undergraduates hundreds and hundreds of waffles. So it's a lot of fun. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, thank you so much for being a guest with us at Good Faith Weekly. The new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, arrives at bookstores and online April 20th. So make certain that you go ahead and buy it already. Put it pre-order, uh, pre-order. Yeah, pre That's right. So thank you. It was a delight to have you today. Great talking to you or with you. Thanks. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly once again. And as always, we'll return next week with another guest. Until then, keep living good faith. Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y.org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you.